Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Conversational. My name is Julie Rain, and I have the pleasure of introducing everybody today to Tatsuya, aka Tats Nakagawa. Tats is the co-founder and COO of a roof coating manufacturing company called Castagra. So this is a company that it's, it says Ecodur eco producing, we'll talk to him about it, but it's approved and used by the top companies in the world. It's been voted top green vention, thus the Ecodur, right? The top green vention by the entrepreneur reality show Dragon's Den. So cool that uh, there's, a, I will have to find out if he was actually on that show. Over the past 20 years, Tots has launched hundreds of products and services. He co-authored Overcoming Inventoritis, The Silent Killer of Innovation, which is funny, uh, forward by Steve Wozniak, very cool, a co-founder of Apple, so he, uh, he runs in some pretty prestigious circles. He has spoken to a variety of industry groups, including Chartered Accounts of Canada, Canadian Bar Association, the American Chamber of Commerce, and the International Internet Marketing Association. He's also written a ton of articles for Fast Company, Construction Today. It's not often you get to hear that, Fast Company and Construction Today. <laughs> Industry Week, he's been quoted on CBS News, lots of other TV programs. He actually is also a host of a podcast himself on the C-Suite Network, which we're both a part of, called Specified. And this is one where he interviews leaders who have overcome adversity and built big organizations, so anywhere from zero to 100 million plus. And have also made an impactful change in building materials and coatings industry. So it's a pretty cool background. I'm very excited to um, to bring you in to have you share your your story and all your your cool hoshimos. We're gonna have to hear, of course, about this reality show and about Steve Wozniak. So that's all that's all coming. And obviously, if you didn't guess, he's Canadian from those uh, Canadian um, <laughs> uh, awards I mentioned. So welcome, Tots. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, the invite. It's uh it's great. No, it's great. And I love I love your I I you've been I love always having different people, but I I can tell you we haven't had anybody from the roofing industry before. So you you're <laughs> the uh you're breaking that mold for us. Um so you're so with a name like Tatsuya Nakagawa, um it's pretty I think you you know, it's pretty obvious that you were you're have some Japanese heritage somewhere. Were you born in Japan? Yeah, I was born in Japan. I was three when I when I when I came to Canada, and I I go by the nickname Tats because when I came to Canada, there wasn't too many Japanese people. Like, you know, currently I think where I live in the Lower Mainland in Vancouver, there's there's a lot more Asian population, but at the time there wasn't as many, and and people used to just butcher my name for for all sorts of different, you know deliberate and, and non-deliberate ways and I kind of got tired of it and I thought if someone's gonna you know call me by something I'm, I'm gonna sort of control my own destiny and, and give them the name Tats because I really didn't like some of the other names that were calling me yeah I, well fair enough right so Tats it the Tats it is and it's good it's cute sticks I love it so when did how old were you when you came um to Canada from Japan I was three, yeah. So it's it's really early on, and what? we we landed in Banff, Banff, Alberta, which mm-hmm. is uh, you know it's a pretty it's a pretty small town. It's a beautiful area for skiing. There's a lot of Banff. The the mountain is beautiful, right, for skiing. Yeah, I have some early mer- memories where a, a bear was going through the garbage, and and there was a big gigantic moose in our front yard. So. It was uh, <laughs> it was very uh, sort of uh, nature uh, nature focused there. 
<laughs> that's so why did your why did your family so did you you've got a younger sister as well right yeah i have a younger sister it was my dad's vision he, he wanted to come to canada he he got a job at a sort of gift shop chain that had a location in, in Banff and it was sort of um, linked to a, a famous celebrity in, in Japan. He had these chains of uh, gift shops around the world and he, he had a talk show and he was kind of the Johnny Carson of, of Japan. Really? And, but it's, yeah, and he had these boutique gift shops that were destinations for Japanese tourists. And one of them was in Banff. And Banff was one of those sort of stereotypical places you needed to come to in Canada, right? Niagara yep. Falls, Banff, Vancouver. Yep. And yeah, that's, that's where we started. Wow. Okay. And so did he, he, so he came over because the Johnny Carson of Japan had invested or owned these gift shops and your dad did he get in touch with this guy or he just you know I don't know the exact sequence of how he got the job you know he had to work his way up right so it wasn't like uh you know he got the job in Japan and and he sort of got transplanted I think he he went through a series of jobs and and sort of ended up at the the lower level of that and he worked his way up so got and he's so your dad this this little this sort of introduction of your dad decided he wanted to move to Canada because he'd always had this dream that is a that's sort of thematic in your history, no? Your dad kind of gets these, kind of gets these dreams, and he he drags <laughs> you guys. I mean, and probably not kicking and screaming, but takes you. So, will you share a little bit of that? I thought that was really fascinating. Sure. I mean, he he loves the kind of the adventure, moving around, and you know, he's sort of legendary among real estate uh, brokers, I guess, because he, he loved moving from house to house. And I remember, we we go no more than a year to to two or three years at the most before we'd move location and was to to nicer and nicer areas as he sort of you know grew his career and and provided uh, for a family but then then it became more later in life it became more arbitrary and it was more impulsive and it was kind of a hobby so that was pretty hard because I remember back where I'd come back from school and there'd be a, a real estate sign up on their front yard with the sold sign and I haven't heard anything about it. And it was kind of a split second decision. And I remember this other time where whereas I was in the, uh, the house taking a shower and there was some decision to, to, uh, to do a showing and there was a group coming through and I was, I was busy taking a shower. So, I mean, the embarrassment, it was just, it was kind of horrible. I mean, I, we laugh about it now, but it was kind of traumatic sometimes because you just don't know where you're going to be. Right. But well, especially moving around, I would imagine. So, I mean, look, you've come, you've come from a, a different country, a different culture. Now you were young, so you probably sure. pretty instantly, but Moving around, I don't care who you are. I moved around a lot. It's that's hard. It's and if your dad's moving you around a lot and you have to switch schools, it's that's tough. It it does in my in my experience, it's a, a couple of things. It either makes you an extreme extrovert because you learn that you mm. have to be, or you become an extreme introvert because you're like you know you just can't. You're like oh my god, it's not worth coming out of. Oh, we move all the time. What what uh, did you fall into either one of those camps? Yeah, the- I, th- I think I was naturally an introvert, but I think I, I've learned, I mean, the positive side, I think it's helped me adapt uh, quicker because all the time, you're all the time you're learning to meet new friends and, 
and 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 do things. But I think on the on the negative side, which I've I've learned to sort of deal with over the years, is you try not to get too attached to your surroundings because you just don't know if if those are going to change. So there's there's a positive which which helped me quite a lot in entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship. Do we ever really know what's going on? We're constantly adapting. But on the the flip side, I think back in the day, it was sort of hard to 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 develop long term relationship because this was sort of pre sort of uh, Instagram and social media, where it's easier to stay in touch. Where you know when you move across town, if you didn't have a car, which I did at the time, then a lot of things can can you know sort of happen that gets in the way of that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were you had a couple of really cool stories, I think, about your growing up. Um, and it's I'm sorry. People every people want to dial in and ask you questions, apparently, Toss. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um <laughs> so um but in school, I you told me about a paper that's um mm, yeah. It kind of well. I'll let you tell the story. Tell about you. Talk about your paper when you were. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I I learned to like learning and school later on, but I, you know, I definitely was sort of, I, you know, didn't didn't sort of connect to it. I was I was more into athletics. I think that's my outlet for being social and and connecting with people. But I think there's there's certain aspects about school that I didn't really like and. And I had some some early teachers that were very discouraging to to some of the stuff that I was doing and writing. And I, I mean, to this day, I remember it. Like I remember, I think it was in grade two, there was a teacher that just really didn't like my I don't know my writing or something. I remember handing something into the teacher, and this was in front of the entire class. She took my book, took a quick look at it, and told it told me it was trash, and it threw it across the room. And I could I could still hear the notebook land on the ground like it was humiliating right so i've um i've sort of carried that with me and i i've you know more recently tackled that and have gotten into the sort of the writing side and sort of exploring um other things but that early life stuff really sits with you right it, it, yeah. you kind of try to move past it but you you almost have to say you know that was then and I, i'm in a different phase and sort of accept that instead of trying to to distance yourself from that because I think that that sort of suppresses it and you don't deal with it. So, it is, but I still can, remember that. Of course, it, that can have, I think that can have a ton of, you know, it's the thing is that I always find remarkable when I ask these questions is mm -hmm. the memory that you have. I mean, that was, you know, decades ago, yeah. but it's still really, it's still really ingrained in your, in your head. And we all have those stories. And so they do influence us, you know, in one way or the other, whether it's to hold us back or to spur us on or whatever. And so, I just, I just thought with your kind of your introvert extrovert sort of that that dichotomy you were just talking about, that that story kind of brought that to life a little bit. But you've got another great childhood story that I think um, is interesting. That you when when we were talking about things that that just kind of stuck out to you, this was that sort of I'll call it the the drama slash band dilemma. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. I think um, you know. You know, talking about my introvertness and shyness, something that I've worked on, one of the, the breaking points came when I was in high school in grade eight. I went to this very unique and small school, which you had to take either band or drama. And I hated 
the idea of drama so much, like, you know, being in front of people you don't really know well, and this is me coming into a new school mm -hmm. and doing God knows what in front of these people and just feeling silly about it. And I, I just had this really bad image and I said, you know what, I'm going to go into band. So I showed up on band class and I looked around and I realized something. Everyone here plays music and has an instrument. And for some reason, because of the fact that I was hating the idea of drama so much, I, I put myself in the situation where, where, you know, I wasn't playing, I didn't have an instrument or I didn't, I couldn't play instrument or read music. And I thought maybe because my parents and my sister are so musical, I could get through it. Maybe that was, that's, that was my reasoning. Yeah. And the second mistake I made was I picked the trumpet. I, for some reason, I thought that, you know, the, the less number of keys, it only has three keys. How hard could it be? <laughs> so, so this series of compound mistakes running from this fear. And I'm, I'm sitting in this class trying to, trying to sort of not be disruptive, but obviously I'm so disruptive. Like I'm standing out like a sore thumb. I'm so bad that they shove me in the bad equipment locker room in the back to practice myself. And I'm hanging my head in shame and I'm making horrible noises back there, like, you know, just, just trying to play. And, and I'm thinking, oh, this is so bad. This is 20 times worse than this drama thing. But you know what? Maybe it won't get worse. Maybe they'll forget about me, right? I'm back here, but they're out there. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I'll write off this semester and I'll never think of it again. And mm -hmm. The, near the end of the semester, the teacher walks in and says, in order to pass this class, you're going to have to play in the school concert in front of everyone. Oh, my God. Oh and my, my God. face goes white. <laughs> I don't think I remember feeling my legs. And, and when the teacher ran out, I, I rushed to find my friend and said, what am I supposed to do? do with this yeah. and you know being a good friend he goes well just pretend just pretend you can make it through it yeah so so i show up at concert day and i'm sitting there and the teacher's there ready to start the the sort of piece that they're playing and i'm, I'm sitting with the band and i clue in that you know what i am not good enough to pretend so I'm hanging my head in shame. I, I make a complete ass of myself in front of the entire school. And ever <laughs> since then, I've been really trying to, to tackle the introvertness that's held me back. So I've, I took Toastmasters classes. I took speaking in university. I've done everything I possibly could to sort of lessen that. And it's, it's a, it's a big struggle if you're an entrepreneur and you're an introvert because entrepreneurship typically favors extroverts. Yeah. They're going out there meeting things. They have bold visions and are afraid to put it out there. They attract capital. They do all these things. So if you're an introvert uh, and, and you're, you're born to be an entrepreneur, I think there's a lot of struggle there or I've struggled yeah. with it. Well, and you, it's interesting because then from there, you kind of, I, you know, look, you, you decided you, you kind of went that way, but the arts, I say the arts, it's really kind 
kind of science and art kind of mm-hmm. became your 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 calling, right? Because you you wanted to you you kind of went to to the route of well architecture, no, and drafting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so yeah, for sure. I, I I looked at that. I had a friend of mine that had uh, a dad that was a architect and at his house he would have these elaborate models and i was looking at that saying that's so cool like being able to take ideas and turn them into reality that's perfect that's for me so i enrolled in drafting class and i started to to you know create these drawings this is before i guess you know computer software was very active in this area yeah and and i remember <laughs> drawing, drawing these these things, and then the teacher come up uh, was coming up to me, going, "You know what? That's a millimeter off. That's a millimeter off." And I gave him the kind of "You're being so picky" okay. look. Yeah. And then he, he picks up on that right away. You know, me being a, a bratty uh, student, know it says, all. <laughs> yeah, know it all. And then he gives me this: "That's a millimeter off on the paper, but that's ten meters off on a building." Yes. And that just smoked me right in the face. And I knew that drafting was not going to be for me. The perfection thing. But, you know, you've got this. So there's, I'm, I'm going to have you tell one more story about, like, tennis is my headline for this. Yeah, yeah. Because you've got, if you listen to these stories, you're like, yep, I'm going to do this. And I'm going <laughs> like, to, for being an introvert, you're also yeah. really brave. Because mm. you have no problem, like, okay, I'm going to go in and I got this and I'm going to do this. You see something. You know, I guess you could either be called like too too frivolous, where it's like you see one thing and you ch- chase after the shiny, sparkly object, or it's like you're super brave because like, there's nothing that's going to hold you back. So, how did you get into the tennis? Mm, okay, so I was 15, and this is really late for tennis, by the way. And I was I was watching a Davis Cup match, which for for those not into tennis, it's uh, country versus country, and it was Canada versus Sweden. And our, our Canadian player was 250 somewhat in the world. And he was playing Stefan Edberg, number one in the world at the time. Um, amazing player. And I watched this match and I haven't played that much tennis. I played a little bit, my, my parents played, but I never was really interested in it. Yeah. And I saw the 200 somewhat player beat the number one player in the world. And I thought that was fantastic. I was so <laughs> excited. I immediately went to the that's right I immediately went to the garage I found this old black and white Jimmy Connors rally racket which had the head the size of uh I don't know the the rackets now had these big sort of racket heads so you can you can hit the surface but at the time the the tennis racket had these really smaller heads that were like kind of the size ball. of a grapefruit yeah. or just a few times bigger than the ball. So they were extremely hard to hit. And I was, I remember taking this Jimmy Connors racket going into the garage where there was a, a concrete wall in the back and trying to hit against the, the wall and practice. And I, I couldn't hit two in a row for like a few days. It was, but I, I was determined it, and for some reason it kind of, kind of sparked in me. So where I think I've struggled over the year, the introvertness is there's an upper limit to to my sort of quick startness, like where it's like where it becomes more public and you start to attract attention, right? So mm-hmm. instead of being the captain of the tennis team, I was 
happy with being the second, you know, and just kind of because I feel like entrepreneurship is a very social exercise. The the yeah, I know. I I heard that from somewhere. I forgot who it was. But your your ability to succeed in entrepreneurship is directly proportional to your ability to fail in front of large groups of people. So that's a great quote. <laughs> so yeah. if you look at Elon Musk, like he has this ability to fail in front of millions, if not billions of people, and then not be deterred and keep pushing forward to his mission. You know, yeah. some people have this ability to fail in front of 10 people and have the resilience. But what happens when there's a hundred, a thousand, a million? It's the same concept of if you put a two by four on the ground and you walk across it. Okay, no problem. Everyone can do that. But let's say you put that same two by four and you put it 10,000 feet in the air and you have to sit, do that same motion of walking across that, that strip of wood. It feels completely different. But for those high achievers, they can do it and block out the fact that there's a huge downside of death, embarrassment, ridicule. Right. <laughs> that fight or flight. Right. Yeah. And I have an example. You mentioned Wozniak and this is a perfect example. Uh, I was early on LinkedIn 2004. I had this wonderful uh, opportunity to connect with a guy named Mitchell Levy, who I'm friends to to, to this day. And he um, he's part of C-suite as well. I think. Do you know Mitchell? I don't know him. No. Yeah, so he, he publishes books for, for thought leaders, and I think he's helping Jeffrey as well. And he, he was so kind. He, we wrote a book with my sort of business partner, and he had a great contact with Steve Wozniak. And he got us this glowing testimonial, made it seem like we we're friends. He was so kind to, to, to provide us this summary. And what should I have done being a marketer, your marketer? is I should have gone and t told the world. And I just had this fear of scaling it. And I just did a few presentations, but for the most part, I, I minimized the opportunity. Like I did not take it to its sort of, uh, sort of potential. Yeah. And I think as entrepreneurs, if you look at companies that are always just on the cusp or always underperforming, it, there's some sort of sabotaging behavior and it has to me it has a lot to do with their personal capacity to deal with a wider audience with that downside of failing yeah and you know so i and i think that that's true and your personal story is one where like again kind of we've talked about it that you sort of like go all out and then you you know might you might epically fail again it's in your own <laughs> It's not like, you know, it's an epic failure to like have a squeaky sure. puppet or whatever. But this this tennis thing, I love this story because you you talked about being number two, right? And then you talked about how you had you were self-taught and and you then you'd shared with me how when you stopped trying to do and mimic everybody else and just did it your own way, you started to win. And so there's some sort of self-realization in there. And and so you know, I'd love for you to, to, to share a little bit about sort of why, well, you really, I mean, I'm trying to get to kind of why you stopped. So what happened? Because I think that that, 
you know, I'll call the epic fail was more that your body gave out on you for tennis and, and what your doctor said mm. and what happened to you. Because I feel like that, that really set the tone for you and kind of where you've come even full circle today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I did, I did give the, uh, the tennis go, uh, sorry, goal, a, a really big goal, uh, go. And what you were talking about, which, which was, uh, playing within myself or understanding myself is, you know, when I first started tennis, I was really, really bad. And I'll explain how bad I was. I kept losing first round and I was 15 at the time I was losing to 11 year olds and they were they were trash talking me it was it was embarrassing but it kind of early on it motivated me to to get better but i i kept losing and losing and losing and i was practicing harder and harder and harder and even my parents you know which are very very supportive were were feeling really s- sort of kind of sad about the whole thing maybe you shouldn't do this because yeah. this is causing you so much pain and i was you know an optimist but i was starting to to kind of get very discouraged. And I was getting really close to thinking about possibly quitting. And I tried something new. And the the thing that worked for me and the realization I had was the way that I was playing in the match was what I was playing in the way in which other people expected me to play. Like I was playing like trying to play like a professional tennis player or or a person that's above my ability. And then when I stopped doing that in a a tournament, I was like, forget this. I'm just going to try to play within myself. It actually looked really ugly. Like I'm just bunting the ball. Like I'm hitting it short. I'm hitting it long. I'm I'm lobbing over people's heads. It, it, It literally was no style points. I started to win. I really started to understand how to minimize my errors instead of trying to create these glorious winning shots. Like the equivalent would be entrepreneurships. You can have these glorious moments of genius or you can just be consistent and and plug away at it. And I think some people struggle because they, they want to do something fantastic. They're waiting for the perfect moment, but they get passed by someone that's just grinding it out and following a very simple but fundamentally sound process over a long period of time. Okay, Todd, thanks. So what, what the listeners don't know is that there's a, like a couple of bands of the tropical storm running through through Connecticut and so my power flickered on. <laughs> so so back we are after a brief interruption, hopefully which nobody will listening will have missed a beat, but um, you know, hurricanes are mighty a force. Um, so I know that you were, you were sharing the story about your, your tennis and, you know, lessons learned and things, but your, your injury and your back injury actually played a pivotal role in your future. It didn't just stop your, your career in tennis. It, it actually defined your future career. No, it did. A true holy shit moment that actually yeah, <laughs> set you it, on a new path. Right. It, it did. It did. Like uh, the, the, what you're referring to is yeah, I got into a uh, division one college. I played tennis. It was awesome. But my back just, I herniated a disc in my back. Now it didn't end any tennis career, but I spent, you know, that at that point, I guess four or five years, just all in on this goal. It was all encompassing to see that sort of dissolve. Um, I didn't know what to do. So uh, there was a period where, where there was some transition, but ultimately I, I sort of found my love of marketing and entrepreneurship again, and I found my way into that world. And um, it was great. Uh, I was studying at the time health and fitness 
and I was running conferences, running facilities. So I had that background. So I got into sports marketing, but as I keep kept pushing forward with my entrepreneurial career, I think that the nagging theme that always came up was I wasn't doing a good job taking care of my health. And I know other entrepreneurs are like that too, because there's always something you have to do. And, you know, it's hard to shut it off, but I had the knowledge. Like I, I had the education. I was a personal trainer at a point. I was running international fitness uh, conferences. So I should have known better. And about two years ago, I just, I was in Victoria and we were just sort of hanging out with family and staying at a hotel nearby because we had other guests as well. And I remember reaching down to tie my shoes and I felt a pain in my stomach and I didn't put two and two together, but what was happening when I, when I checked out the, with the doctor was I was just overweight. I somehow neglected it, ignored it as 252 pounds and my body was falling well, apart. How tall are you? I'm, I'm 5'11", five, I'm and oh, I couldn't right, see my toes. Head. I couldn't see my toes. <laughs> and I was, you know, I could, I was huffing and puffing to try, uh, tie my shoelaces. And I had this wake-up call going, oh, like, am I going to be able to play my kids? Because yeah, I had, you know, young kids. And what what what's going to happen to me if I keep going down this path. So I've always con conveniently thought that I could eat anything if I were exercising. And that's just yeah. not true. Like I wasn't exercising that much either. So that just isn't true. So I, I really had to face the uncomfortable truth that I have to put diet and nutrition over taste of food. And, and I love food, like, like a lot of people and, and sort of take those daily difficult steps to to change that and that one thing that sort of shift that sort of finally found the courage to address that set in motion a whole bunch of other sort of discoveries on things I was avoiding as a child or things that I had some belief over like I not good at math or the finance stuff is for something else or operations or writing. I started to tackle each one of those issues because the health one was such a big one. So after I gained some momentum with support from others, I was like, well, if I, if I can do this, what else can I address? So I had this sort of domino effect of starting to address other issues. And when I was doing the weight loss, I didn't it's tell your fears, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. tell many people, like some people knew, but I did not tell people. And, and it took about, you know, four to five months when people started to comfortable asking, because, you know, when people are sort of making a shift, maybe, you know, they're hesitant to comment about someone's weight. So about five yeah. or six months, they started notice, but I, for, there's a big period where I didn't tell anyone. And I don't know why, maybe it was the fear of if I go backwards, I'm committed to it, but, but I, uh, it started to really sink in and it's, it's really helped me. And, and going back to the, the trumpet, trumpet story, one of the things yeah. that I started was the, the podcast, which was is a great revelation and a learning experience for me. But also 15 years earlier, I had a sort of, I was in a mastermind in which I had a colleague that took a comedy class. And he did that to become more sort of 
outward. And he did sort of a stand-up act in front of a bunch of people. And I remember distinctly at the time thinking, I will go to my grave and never, ever do this. This sounds so terrifying. And I, I had a communication coach that was pushing me towards humor. So I just, you know, one day I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, I'm going to get a coach. And my vision of it was I was going to get a coach and I was going to deal with this quietly and, and, you know, I'll just improve it. But she pushed me like three weeks from starting onto an audience and I had to do it. It was completely terrifying, but it was one of the best experiences that I had. And what this had on my entrepreneurial career as, as sort of the roof coatings and, and whatnot is as I became more comfortable with myself and to deal with these health issues, I went from trying to balance the personal to the business to aligning the, the business to the personal and having that yeah. alignment in sync. And that propelled everything to improve. Like there was more customers, we were bringing more talent in, we we're making better decisions and all that seemed to line up. And I know a lot of people like to separate the business and the personal, but the, the vision and the mission in your life have to align well for that to, to work. And I learned that later on after making tons of mistakes, which probably weren't avoidable in terms of getting to where I am. But I think, I think it's critical to think of it that way because every, every successful person has that alignment if they are truly happy. Well, and look, my whole podcast wouldn't exist if it wasn't true that your personal and like these, these situations have everything to do with your, your professional success, because that's yeah. the premise, which is like these, these holy shit moments are the things that actually propel you on. And I love that you were, you, you know, as a you were a fitness instructor and gained this weight and, you know, and I'm sure that's part of the fear is like, you're representing yeah. something of who you are and yet you're, you, you can feel like you're failing at your own chosen profession. And so you, admission of that might be admission to something more than just your own weight gain. And your, cur again, courage and bravery have been stemmed out throughout your story. To be able to, to face that has basically turned everything around, not just personal and health-wise, but your business. Because based from there, then you, didn't you launch your company on that reality show that we opened with? Yeah, I, I did. I, I did that with uh, Peter, business partner, but he's the brave one because he's the one that go, went out and ah. made the pitch. So at the time when, when we launched it, I didn't have that confidence. I was helping out with another pitch that failed. Actually, it was a client that failed. So I was on the air, but he's the, the brave one that had the experience and, and did that pitch. So I think, uh, yeah. you know, I think if there was opportunities now that I could step up and fill in those shoes, I'd be a lot more comfortable to do it. But that was just part of my evolution. I think it's awesome. Well, this has been amazing, Tots. I love your story. I love the the courage. I I love the again this like this immigrant story coming in and just <laughs> the bravery threaded throughout. Um, and you know through all of this, it led you to roofing. It's just amazing to me. So it's it's great. I love that. I hope that the story kind of inspires others to feel like you know all these. You can totally dissociate those personal issues from your career, like you said but they're, they're fully connected. And once you've got to get everything working and kind of love yourself to that point to be able to make things work in your professional, in your professional life, you know, and have it be sustaining. So that's great. Thank you for sharing this. Yeah, and thanks for being a guest. It's been really great chatting with you. Well, thank you for the invite.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.